Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Let us turn in the Word of God as it is found in Hebrews chapter 11 as we return to our study in Hebrews. you want to use the Bible that's in the pew or the chair, turn to page 1008. Now we have, we're going to begin a reading with actually verse 20. And we have studied some, the section on Moses, verses 24 through 26. And actually, I'm going to take the few verses before that and after that, but I won't read the whole section. We're going to talk about several different people and The topic is, how many ways is your faith showing itself? The basic idea that we're touching on every time in Hebrews 11 is expecting God to do us good. Based on verse 6, that if we're going to please God, we must believe that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. And in that overall context of expecting God to do us good, how many ways is your faith showing itself? How many ways? And we're just going to see that in many different circumstances, faith exercises itself and must exercise itself. So we begin with verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt Not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood 
so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, Lord Jesus, we will all the more walk in faith as we consider these men and this woman who did such mighty things, glorious things, by faith. Who truly looked away from the things present to lay hold of the things that are not seen as they took hold of your very promise and lived their lives accordingly. Lord, may we live by promise and may faith have its full effect in every area of our lives. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. When my children were small, uh, sometime along there, we began to get transformers. Uh, you probably younger guys and girls know what a tra- well, mainly the guys, of course, but what a transformer is. It would be a little man that could transform into, say, a vehicle, or he may be a man and he transforms into an animal. And so he could be one thing in one circumstance and suddenly he's carting somebody away. One time he's fighting, one time he's delivering somebody, and uh, one time he fights in this way because he's a man armed in another way when he's an animal, etc. So uh, those are great little things and of course all it just allowed your imagination to go that much further with your little men of course I played with every kind of thing I could find as a kid and had every kind of game every kind of war every kind of sport all acted out by my little men what I would love to have had a transformer Uh, that would have been cool and I, I thought of that as I saw in this passage the many ways that faith acts in the many circumstances. Uh, faith really is, in the deepest sense, a transformer. In that it works itself out in every single aspect of our lives. There's not one part of our life where faith doesn't and cannot transform our very lives. Every circumstance, every responsibility, every obstacle and challenge, every difficulty, every tragedy, every blessing, every relationship is affected by faith. So, not only does it mold itself in that sense, it's kind of a transformer as it applies its different features to the particular circumstance, but 
it's a transform in a much bigger way in that it transforms our very lives. It transforms our perspective. It redefines life for us. It redefines and creates a whole different energy and life and strength for us. Such is faith. And so the question for you and for me is, in how many ways is your faith showing itself? Well, we might ask it the transformer way. In how many ways is faith transforming your life? And it can transform every part of your life and is meant to transform every part of your life. In this section, he first deals with the deaths of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Interesting because their lives were full of things that he could have pointed to in terms of their faith. You think of Joseph and everything that happened to him in Egypt and his faith as he was thrown into prison and continued to believe God. But here the writer apparently believes that those aspects of faith have been shown in the life of Abraham. And now he wants to focus on their death, probably because he wants to keep us looking to the future. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And these three men certainly illustrate that as they were facing the end of their lives. And there was no reason physically for them to think, for Isaac to think that there was blessing that was going to fall on Jacob and Esau. He was still in this land as a sojourner, as Abraham had declared himself. He owned nothing. He had nothing of this land. No possibilities that he would have this land. And yet, as he was dying, he invoked these blessings on Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the same. He's in Egypt. And in one place earlier, he bows in worship over the head of his staff. It actually brings two different events together. And when he was bowing in worship over the head of his staff, he was speaking about having his bones buried in Canaan, even as Joseph speaks of the same thing. So Jacob, even in a foreign land, even in Egypt, even coming from this place where famine occurred, he was still believing that that land was going to be theirs. And he pronounced these blessings. He was controlled not by his circumstance, but controlled completely by the promise of God. And Joseph is the same. He made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, perhaps receiving this all the way from Abraham, who had been told by God that his seed would go into a foreign land. And after 400 years, they would come out with many possessions. So he's believing that to be true. And even Joseph, who has everything that the world could offer in Egypt, abandons it by saying, And when you leave, take my bones with you. His faith was such that he entrusted himself to the future of God's people and and in a sense, fellowship with God and the promise of God, looking even to the, the promise of eternal life in the promise of the land and abandoning Egypt in that statement. He had the world at his feet. And just like 
Moses, a few verses later, who turned his back upon Egypt and being the son of Pharaoh's daughter to identify with the people of God. Joseph did the same thing. So the patriarchs here are seeing the promise that is guaranteed to them even as they are dying. I mean, at this point, you think, well, you know, I believed and I believed and I trusted and I trusted and nothing ever happened. But that wasn't the case for them. Their faith pierced to the future and claimed the future. It brought the future present and real to them. And they based their blessings upon that future. So the patriarchs were basically saying this. The future is yours, O God. The future is yours, my sons, because the future is God's. The future must follow the promise of God. It's as though the present and future must bow down and do the will of God's promise. Everything is conditioned and controlled by God's promise. All things are servants of God's promise. All things are made to serve that promise and made to bring about the blessings of that promise. Isn't that amazing? That your lives are governed by God who promises, I will be your God and here is what I will do to make you into the image of my son. And that just sets the course of history. It's done. It's sure. And nothing can stand in the way of what God will do for his people. And so based upon that sovereign promise and expectation, they pronounce these blessings at their death. And then when you skip to verse 27, which we haven't really touched on, this is a bit difficult verse because when it says that Moses left Egypt, it could refer to the time where he slayed the Egyptian that was attacking one of the Hebrew slaves and then left Egypt. Some would say it can't refer to that because it says he's not afraid of the anger of the king here in verse 27. But there is a long history and a tradition of of belief and teaching that Moses didn't leave out of fear, but he did leave in faith. He left in wisdom, realizing that there was nothing he could do in the situation, and he awaited God's call to return. And I'd lean a little bit toward that because otherwise, if it refers to his leaving Egypt in the Exodus, It's odd that it would be before keeping the Passover and the statement where it says he was afraid of the anger of the king. Certainly at the Exodus, they weren't afraid of the anger of the king. The king was begging them to leave. Also in the Exodus, when it says he endured as seeing him who is invisible, it seems more to refer to his time in the wilderness in Midian, where he had to endure year after year waiting on God and believing and trusting in God. And the idea there is that he had a a continuing belief, a spiritual perception and rest in God in all of that time that God would bring about the promises to his people. But the point is here again, and I think we did touch on this. Look at the last phrase of verse 27. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Compare that with verse 26. When it says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
So you compare those two things, looking to the reward and looking to him who is invisible. So associating those, his eyes were fixed upon the rewarding God always, you see. That's the point. His eyes were totally fixed upon the rewarding God. And he never acted in unbelief. He never turned away from that. That condition, it defined his life for Moses. And then it continues. And of course, this phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, is to... Tell us nothing is done apart from faith. You will never accomplish anything apart from faith. It is by faith that we live, by faith that we think right, by faith that we love, by faith that we bear up under fear, by faith that we bear up under blessing as we should. Then, of course, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. The idea there that he obeyed everything that God had said concerning the blood. God declared that you would be preserved as you smear the blood on the doorposts. He believed him. He entrusted himself to God and they followed God in that. And therefore, they were not destroyed. The idea of believing and being saved, you see, believing in the word and promise of God and being saved. The same idea in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, regarded as the unbelievers here, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The picture is, if you believe in the promise of God and walk in the promise of God, you will be saved. And if not, if you reject it, you will be drowned. And that's specifically said, isn't it, in the, uh, I'm sorry, with Rahab in verse 31. She did not perish with those who were disobedient. The same word he's used earlier to describe uh, Israel in the wilderness. They were not disobedient or unbelieving. Rahab was, and she was saved. She was not, she did not perish. This is to... Encourage all of us that we must continue to trust and believe him and think how this was applying then to the very people he was writing to. The people who themselves were flirting with abandoning Christ because of the pressures of persecution, the possibility even of death and imprisonment, which they had already experienced, as he says in chapter 10 or in an earlier period. And now they were being tempted to abandon the faith. So instead of like Rahab putting her lot in with the people of God, whatever the cost was to her, because when she received the spies, it was an endangerment to her. It was a threat to her life. On the outward show of things, she should have turned them over and played it safe. But she abandoned all hope, all security and safety in Jericho and threw in her lot with the people of God. Think of how that would apply, you see, to these people who were thinking we are going to be safe physically if we abandon Christianity, return to just a Judaism that has peace with the Roman uh, Empire right now. And yet that would be just like Rahab Falling with Jericho. It might have looked on the outward to be the safe thing for her to do. Don't receive these spies. 
You'll get killed because of it. You're committing treason because of it. But no, she entrusted herself with the people of God. She counted on this God to be more powerful than all else. And that is exactly what Moses did as he abandoned, uh, as he abandoned Egypt to be mistreated with the people of God. And so in all of these cases, the idea of faith Looking to the promise of God and looking to the God of the promise and committing your way to him no matter what. Committing your way to his word no matter what else. And for that to be the sole motivation for your life. And of course, Jericho is very similar. Here they did something by marching around the city for six days and then the final the seventh day. To think that the blowing of a trumpet would knock down walls. Well, of course, it it wouldn't, but God did. But here again, they obeyed the word of God, just like with the blood on the doorpost. They obeyed the word of God, the promise of God, and they gave themselves to it, whatever he would say. So by faith, they kept the Passover. By faith, they go through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls fall down. By faith, Rahab gives herself over to God and is not destroyed. Well, several things I want to point out about this, this passage. One is this, that faith is not just a belief in the promise, but it's a belief in God himself. That is, the promise is the way by which we lay hold of God. It's the way God comes to us. You see, in each of these cases, a promise had been given, a word had been given. It's like a bridge by which God comes to them and by which they lay hold of God. So the promise is everything in this passage. The the promise is the way we lay hold of God. So it's believing Ultimately, in God's faithfulness and goodness that is expressed in his promise. To reject his promise is to say, you are not faithful, you are not good. Your promise is no good. I will not depend upon you, I will not obey you. Because you are not faithful and you are not good. So the promise is the actual handle by which you lay hold of his faithfulness and goodness. The promise is the very way he conveys that goodness to you. It's the very way he assures you of that goodness. He reveals his intention to do you good. It's the very manifestation of his goodness to come to you. Why should he come to you and promise you? Why does he do that? Why does he constantly give us promise? If not to enable us to lay hold of who he is. It's a revelation of himself, of his own willingness and desire for us. The promise then tells you who he is. It tells you who he is. And it tells you what he is to you and means to be for you. So he comes to you in this Promise, And so you take him or leave him to the degree that you believe him in his glorious promises. This is how you will taste him and experience him by believing in his promise. This is how you come to worship him. This is how you become like him. 
And in this, it's no surprise that blessing and promise are always linked together. In Hebrews 6, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And this is the point. Because of who God is, his promise is always a promise to bless you. It's always the promise to bless you. Of course, unless you refuse his blessing, unless you turn away and refuse his goodness and won't give yourself into his gracious hands to do you good, then, of course, he promises or threatens judgment. But he comes to you. And this is the amazing thing. God comes to us promising to bless us. And so. There are clusters and clusters of promises that crowd God's revelation to us. It's like his word looks like this overstuffed suitcase that you can't even get to all the promises in it. It's just brimming over in his word. And that's an indication that this word is revealing his goodness and his kindness, his, his intention to take hold of your life and transform it. His promise is like those huge vats of wine Jesus created, turning water into wine. That was a, a, a symbol of the messianic blessings that would come to us. And what a sign of, of the abundance of his blessing that he intends for you and for me. And these passages show that faith exercises, it lays hold of God himself and it lays hold of God in difficulty, doesn't it? I mean, under duress, under the destruction of cities or the facing of, of an impossible situation like the parting of the Red Sea or the tearing down of the walls of Jericho or of circumstances that you can't even understand. Why should we put this blood on the doorpost? Why should we march around a city in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of death? And so when God chooses unconventional means upsetting means, even painful means to accomplish his ends, we still cling to the promise of his faithfulness. The promises, as Lane says, are being worked out under God's care. The promise is doing just fine. The promise is alive and well. The promise is not heaving and gasping for breath. The promise is gathering more and more strength. And even in verse 20, when it says he invoked future blessings, it speaks of an unknownness about that future, an uncertainty. Who knows what God is going to do? But that's not the point that we have to know what he's going to do. We know he is at work and his promise is sure. His promise is so sure that there is this constancy in his promise that is, is given to us in Scripture. We read in Lamentations that his mercies are new every morning. And so the promise brings, as it were, new truckloads of God's goodness to us every day. Imagine a new delivery every day to your doorstep of fresh hot breads and freshly picked fruits and vegetables and fresh dairy and grains and eggs and meat and fish. The promise brings daily deliveries of goodness so we read in Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. It's as though God is taking a shovel and he's 
throwing it our way. And before we've even embraced that, he's coming with another shovel load. God is infinitely eager and passionate. And so the psalmist, Psalm 52, 9, I will wait for your name, for it is good. Name is the revelation of who he is. Here it is. Here's what your name is. It is good. I will wait for you. I will depend upon you. I will count on you because your name is good. 54, 6. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It is good to be near you. Psalm 85, the Lord will give what is good. Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. So to use a military analogy, the promise means that God gets supplies through to his troops. In every case, and think of this, his troops are his children. Now, how hard are you going to work to get your supplies through to your children that are fighting? He knows, as Jesus says, what they have need of even before they radio back to him. He knows what they have need of. They're his children, his eyes upon them. And he's in control of all the roads and bridges. He controls the airways and the seaways. Nothing and nobody ever stops him from bringing his supplies to his children His mercies are new every morning. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And so the psalmist can say in Psalm 62, you're my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Think of the goodness of God pledged to you. It's the promise that comes to you at all times. And that's why even... If you have nothing else but the promise of God, if you have the bare promise of God and everything's taken away, you've got a treasury in that promise. And that's why the psalm, psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. See? Taste the promise. Believe the promise. That's the Old Testament version of eleven six. Hebrews eleven six here, that we must believe that he rewards those that seek him. We must believe that he is good and taste him. And you see, he comes to us. He comes to us with good news of the gospel. It's not. It's not only an announcement of his intention to do you good, but an announcement of the good he's already done you. In his son that he's already provided that that is the good news. It's not the bad news. In Second Corinthians five in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, the basic gospel message is the good news. I've accomplished salvation for you. Come. And even that through his ambassadors, he begs us, he implores us. 
Isn't it amazing that God's promise is an imploring, begging us to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet, by nature, we will turn away from it. We will live our lives in anxiety and fear and sinfulness and give in to every kind of temptation. And you can be sure that Satan will try and bury the promise from you. He will seek to efface the promise, to distract you from it, to shock you or lure you away from it. He is the enemy of the promise. Sin is the enemy of the promise. Satan destroys faith by destroying our knowledge of the promise and our belief in the promise and our dependence upon the promise. There are very few things that give me the heebie-jeebies more. I love, well, I won't talk about the far side with the guy at the table with you know, bottles of heebie-jeebies and all that kind of stuff that he's selling. But nothing gives me more heebie-jeebies than dark water at night. Okay, Just even on a, an innocent lake where you know there's nothing in there that can hurt you, uh, to be in that black water uh, in the middle of the lake, is, is scary. Now think about it in the ocean, and then I would just, I, I would hit the water, I would have a heart attack right there. You know, nothing would have to bite me, I'd be dead, they'd just come and eat me then. <clears throat> Can you imagine being on a boat in the ocean away from the shore on a warm, well stocked ship, brightly lit, comfortable, all your needs? And being lured by someone to jump off the boat into those black waters. You think, what would it take to get you to jump off this boat into those waters? The unknown black waters that are right there. Brothers and sisters, that is what Satan tempts you to do in every, tempts you to do in every sin. Don't you see, Darwin, don't you see? That's the temptation, is to leave the promise of God. For what? The dark waters of your own will, of of sin, of Satan's control over your life. Abandon the ship of God's promise and to leap in these dark waters of disobedience. And sin in hopes of finding security and satisfaction and a future. And when you put it in those terms, you just think, what fool. (laughs) And what's so sad is that we can get so numb to God and his promise and so numb to the experience of his fellowship. We don't even feel the cold snap when we hit the water of unbelief. We don't even feel it. We keep swimming further and further, laughing like a drunk person swimming away from his yacht, not even knowing what he's doing. No surprise in 2 Timothy 2 that Paul, speaking of people coming to repentance, says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. For some reason, the the, uh, ESV leaves off this critical part of come to their senses. But you see it in the New American Standard and the NIV. It's certainly there in the original. 
And here's the interesting thing. Come to their senses literally means to return to sobriety. So that the whole of their lives up to that point is marked by like a drunk person swimming off from God. Swimming off from the promises of God. You have to be spiritually and morally crazy not to live in the safety and blessing and yet the dangerous adventure of God's promise. It's it's interesting. It's at once the safest place for God's presence, for his true blessing, for the future astonishing inheritance. But as to your security in this world, as to having to cast off from familiar territory and encounter the attacks and the abuse of a world set against the true God, it's the most dangerous and adventuresome place you can be. It's whitewater rafting on a number five. It's the safest and most dangerous. So, how about you, brother and sister? By faith, by faith, by faith. Even love, even love comes into play here. And I only have time to mention it. And we'll talk about it more next week. But just to quote this verse, and we'll return to it. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, love works out of faith. By faith, you will love your wife. By faith, you will love your husband. By faith, you will love your neighborhood. By faith, you will love the afflicted and the poor in the world. By faith, you will spend yourself and lose yourself for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only by faith. Only believing in the promises of God. Only believing in the power of God. Only helplessly falling down in all of your inadequacies and crying out to God. To take you and use you. Only then will we see walls fall and will we part the sea, so to speak. Will we abandon the world for the sake of the gospel and kingdom of God? Love, we read in Romans 13, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Endures all things. Now, that little phrase, believes all things, it doesn't mean what many have said, that it believes the best in people. You know, that's kind of warm and fuzzy. Love believes the best in people, you know. But that's not what it's talking about. Love believes in God. Love believes in God's sovereignty. Love believes in God's goodness. Love believes in God's promise. Love entrusts itself to God and continues to do good. It's the same thing as 1 Peter. They entrust their souls to a faithful God as they suffer while what? Doing good. Same as 1 Corinthians 13. With the sandwich, you see, the pieces of bread, they bear all things and they endure all things. Why? Because they believe and they hope all. 
It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, that I might learn how to live faithful to your promise. That I might learn what your promise means. That I might learn what love means in a hard situation. It was good that I was afflicted. Not that I might intellectually learn your word, but I might learn it. That I might know what it is to entrust my life to God and to do good. By faith, by faith, by faith. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we confess to you in how many ways we do not believe you. We do not trust you. In how many ways we are not bound up, convinced of the goodness of God to us, the faithfulness of God to us. Lord, your promises crowd in. Your promises spill out. Your promises come to us with vigor and strength and passion. They come from the very heart of God. You, Lord, seeking to convince us of your goodness and faithfulness to us. And they're all promises of blessing. Lord, may we be men and women of your word as never before. Studying that word, memorizing that word, knowing that word, believing that word, garnering, cultivating all of the precious commands and promises of God. All of it is glorious promise. Blessed is, are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with all their whole heart. Oh, Lord. Bless us. And if there are any here that do not know you, that have not begun to entrust their lives to this God, that even now are swimming out of the ocean of their self-will, the darkness of their own disobedience and refusal of your goodness and light, draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself. That even now they will be restored to true spiritual sobriety and give themselves up to the God that made them and the God that has already acted in Christ Jesus for their benefit. Oh Lord, grant for them the transformation of faith and grant for us that faith will transform every part of our lives. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't
Oh